0: Listener production. It was still, yeah, wrapped up with a bit of shame and an embarrassment somehow that I had been, you know, ruined that way and affected in such a deep way. And I didn't want to be that way. I didn't want to feel like I was broken, but a part of me felt like I was permanently broken from that experience.
1: So I'm going to dig deep to give you a new window into the souls of the people we're curious to get to know and understand. There might be tears as well as laughter as we celebrate the real-life flaws and vulnerabilities that make us human. If you're a woman of a certain age, you would have grown up with Alison Bray-Dado. She was one of our first supermodels, starring on the cover of Cosmo, Dolly and Clio magazines in the 80s and 90s. Oh, I dreamt of having her glossy locks and clear skin. I wanted to talk to Ali about what those modelling years were really like. And since we are the same age, I also wanted to chat with her about how we can navigate menopause and finding our voice. It's an experience she shares in her fabulous book, Queen Menopause. And just to let you know, we do cover some heavy topics in our conversation, including sexual assault, something which Ali opens up about in this conversation. to be sitting across from your beautiful face and your lovely energy. You have this way about you, I think, that you just exude this beautiful sort of warmth.
0: You do. Thank you. Well, I always feel the same way about you. I've always felt that about you, like from your TV to podcast, and there's something about your aura energy that always comes across as my favourite word is kind. So. I've always been drawn to you as well. (laughs) Oh, well, right back at you. And so how special that we're both here together discussing
1: things that are very close to our hearts and matter to us. I grew up, like so many other women of my age, wanting to be you because you were there. You were our first supermodel. Mm, mm.
0: Well, certainly the supermodel. For the younger age group, because we had Elle McPherson, and I was looking at her going, holy moly, how do you ever, you know, get a body like that? You're born with a body like that really, aren't you? Excuse me, you as the the Dolly cover
1: girl, you were looking at Elle McPherson, Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And I was looking at the Christy Turlington's and the Cindy Crawford's and wishing I could look like them. Yeah, never looked in the mirror and went, Yes, I'm the supermodel of Australia.
1: <laughs> what is that about, though? Uh, Why do we do that? Why are we terrible. never
0: enough, especially our younger selves? I know. You've got two daughters, I've got two daughters. And I just look at them when they judge themselves and I just think, oh, girls, if only, you know, you get to my age and you go, why was I not out celebrating my gorgeous physique and my, and my unlined face more than I should have been? I was judging myself way back then. It's so silly, you know, but it's so inbred. I just think it's so inbred in our culture, particularly for girls and, you know, What sort of teenage girls sort of doesn't have a hang-up in some place or another? It's pretty rare that you find a teenager that's 100% confident in who they are. Because they're the hardest times
1: of your life, I think, Mm. those teenage years. But are you telling me, though, that there wasn't a moment when you'd see yourself on the cover of Dolly and think, oh, I look pretty good or this is good, I feel good about this?
0: I, I definitely had that. For sure. Yeah. There was many a cover and fashion spread that I absolutely loved. Loved then, love now. Proud of so much of the work that I did there. Yeah. And look, and was really happy with the way I looked for sure. It was still didn't sort of lift me to high confidence in a lot of ways about myself. I think because I had so much insecurity more about who I was rather than what I looked like, you know, so I, I think that was sort of underground a lot of the insecurities that I had, but I could certainly certainly look at pictures and covers and go, yeah, nailed that one, <laughs> or the hair and makeup <laughs> photographer did.
1: And Help the a hair. Lot. <laughs> Let's talk about the <laughs> hair. I remember looking at those those pictures of you and thinking, oh, the glossy long hair. And I had terrible acne, and and I remember reading in Dolly a tip about covering your acne was to turn them into beauty spots. The, the only oh, problem was I had about 30 beauty spots yeah, all over right. my face and it didn't work. <laughs> and there was you with your flawless skin.
0: Well, yeah, look, my skin was pretty good. I was pretty lucky. My mum had glorious English skin, so I was lucky to get her skin. I certainly had, you know, the pimples come up, you know, they had to cover that with makeup and a little airbrushing back in those days uh, to get rid of them. There's one famous photo of me in Harper's Bazaar, and I'm I'm holding I think my hand up to my chin or my something up to my chin, and I had the most enormous boil of a pimple, and they were like, "It's okay, we can hide." it. <laughs> and I was like, "There I was, just covering that, just you know."
1: <laughs> so even supermodels get pimples, have acne for sure. <laughs> For sure, at
0: least I know I did. And I'm I'm sure other girls do. Yeah, they just hide it well.
1: And, you know, when we think about modelling, there's this idea that it's glamorous, you know, it looks so fabulous and you go to amazing places. But it's not always so glamorous. I mean, there were some photo shoots that you did that were awful, where photographers and stylists and hairdressers were pretty hideous to you.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was grateful, you know mostly in Australia, um and certainly once I got further into the industry, I was a lot more at ease, and I always knew somebody on set, which was really nice. Pretty much across the board hair and makeup people were pretty much my safety zone. They were really lovely. I did have a few, you know, sort of the early days where I just got the most horrendous haircuts and told to still, you know, smile and wave, you know, as I, as I was there with tears brewing in my eyes with these awful haircuts. And and how old were you? I started when I was 16. So those few months, you know, the, yeah, like, you know, the sexual comments that I didn't get at the time was, you know, what would now be called, not abuse, but certainly harassment, sexual har- harassment. Absolutely. So those sorts of things that I didn't understand, I was super naive Uh, that that was not okay. And I certainly never said, you can't ask me those questions. You can't say those comments to me. You know, I did a shoot the other day and I, I was kicking myself actually because there was three women, all of us, at least over 45. And the photographer was younger than all of us. And he kept on saying to the three of us, okay, girls, can you just move over there? And girls smile a bit more. And he was, look, he was saying it in a nice way, but just that part of me was like, Mm. I'm not a girl. I'm not a girl. <laughs> None of us are girls. We're older than you, you know. And it was just like, so like, do I say something? And I, I ended up not saying anything. We kind of the three of us were laughing between ourselves, and you know, I'd sort of at the end said, well, you know, it was nice working with you. I am, you know, I am older than you, right? He's <laughs> like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, just all those things that I things that I wish I had have said or taken more care of myself back well, you, then, I just didn't know how. Well, that's it. And you pick your battles. But you had your dad, though. Yeah.
1: You wrote about this particular incident in your extraordinary book, Queen Menopause, where your dad actually did something on your behalf. Tell us
0: about that. He did. Well, it was one of my first... Shoots for Dolly Magazine. And again, as I said, very naive. I came from the northern suburbs and hadn't really traveled much or done much. And my father is or was a magistrate. And we were very much told to behave and follow the law and what have you. So this particular shoot there was cocaine in abundance. Hair and makeup were coked out. Photographer was coked out. The two male models were coked out and the hairstylist proceeded to burn the tops of my ears, my scalp with the curling tongs because she was high on coke. Um, and every time I would flinch and move away from sort of my hair being burnt, she would say, stop moving, stop moving. So I get up in front of the camera and I'm, again, I am don't know which way is up because my head is on fire. I've got, you know, pain. I've been, you know, internally crying. And the photographer just said, you know, this isn't for me. This is for you. Now smile. And I sort of pulled my crap together and was able to get through the job. Um, I was offered Coke. I was 16, as I said, and just felt like so horrible, horrible at the end of that shoot. And I got back in the car because dad came to pick me up and told him what had happened. And he just sort of just nodded his head, didn't, didn't say much He goes, yeah, that's awful. Right. Okay. And he said, just tell me the names and told him the name. And then I let it go. The next day, a huge bunch of flowers arrives at my doorstep from the magazine just saying, we are so sorry. That was completely unacceptable. We offer our deepest, sincerest apologies. Great. And then that was it. Now, I never worked with that photographer again uh, because, (laughs) come to find out, it was literally like 15, 20 years later, I bumped into that male model. And he said, do you remember that shoot? And I said, of course I remember that shoot. And he said, you know your father threatened the photographer with legal action, and said, if you ever go near my daughter again, I will run you out of town. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? I had no idea. And I just was like, my dad's a superhero. That is the coolest thing. Had no idea. And he, and I just thought it was great that in a lot of ways he didn't tell me, you know, but maybe, I, maybe it would have been nice to know at the time as well. But, yeah, it was just amazing. And, yeah, it didn't didn't harm my career any, which was good, but, um, and, uh, yeah, he made it very clear and I never, I've never, i never seen that photographer ever again.
1: Oh, <laughs> I think that is such a cracker of a story mm. and I was lucky enough to briefly meet your dad That's at right. a book event
0: that you did and he is a superhero. Good <laughs> on him, <laughs> That's right. I spoke to him about it just the other day and he goes, oh, yes, I remember that. I remember that.
1: So yeah, (laughs) that's good. Amazing, amazing man. So your career was taking off. You're on the covers everywhere and you decide to head overseas. And as a lot of models do, they head to Japan and it's a good place to get lovely pictures, make some money. And so you, you headed there, things were going well, but Things took quite an unpleasant, awful turn mm. when you went to a party with a friend.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a very odd scene over there, actually. It's it's sort of it's kind of like the wild, wild west of modeling in a way, because there's no parental, there's no adults keeping track of anything that's going on over there. And again, I was I think I maybe had just turned 17. Again, I was very, very young. And very lonely over there. First time out of home, and was invited to this party by a girl in my in my model block. And um, uh, when
1: you say model block,
0: that's sort of like an apartment, isn't it? Yes. Where
1: agencies will put all of the models who've come from around the world.
0: Exactly, it's like a boarding house for models. <laughs> So she was an English girl, a lovely English girl, and we'd sort of been continuously booked together for some reason. I don't know, it must have been our look, was the right look for them. So I'd done three or four jobs with her. She was in my same block. So said, so do you want to come to this party? And I was like, oh, sure. So it was at some, I don't even know whose house it was at, or apartment. And we toddled off over there and I'm sitting on the couch talking to her when completely out of the blue, these two other male models come rushing towards us, physically pick me up, shove me into the cupboard, which happened to kind of actually be in the middle of the party and proceeded to grope, you know, my breasts, my vagina. They were sticking their tongue down my throat. They were holding me, you know, know, both of them were doing it. And I had a little cropped I had a black crop top on at the time, long sleeve, black crop top and a pair of jeans. And, you know, it sounds so cliche because you hear it all the time, but I actually had the words said to me, you deserved it. Look at what you're wearing. And I just, I remember that just going, what? Like I've got a black long sleeve t-shirt on and a pair of jeans so while I was screaming and I'm and the music's going outside of the cupboard and I'm screaming I'm screaming and and moving around and this guy comes and he goes get off her get off her, so he pulls the two guys off, and I come out and I'm completely bewildered completely in shock, I don't know anyone else in the room, and he was like do you want to get out of here, and I said yeah yeah I do I just want to go home so. It was quite a long way home. We had to take a train and then we had to walk. And so he was chatting to me and he was really lovely. So yeah, we get back to my apartment and I think he's going to deliver me safely into my apartment. And he's like, oh, I'll just come in for a bit. That was my mistake. So he came in and then proceeded to rape me. And as I've said in the book, I he was actually a boxer. professional boxer as well. So for a long time I didn't actually think it was rape because I sort of just let it happen. I just didn't fight back because I'd already been in shock from what had happened and he kind of saved me. So it was this massively confusing experience of he saved me from a horrible situation and now he's delivered me home. How do I say no? I, and I was like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. And then I just shut up. I didn't say anything. So then I just packed it away, packed that away, put it under the bed, padlocked it. <laughs> just didn't revisit that for many, many, many years.
1: Ali, listening to you say that, it, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart for you as a young woman to have that sort of experience and and for you to question mm. yourself, what did I do wrong? Yeah. Was I wearing the wrong thing? Should I have stopped this? I should have said something. And that that enrages me too mm.
0: mm-hmm.
1: that as women we should not be having that soundtrack in our heads. Absolutely. And, and probably by what you did, you protected yourself yep. Yep. from this physically strong
0: man. Yeah. And who knows then what might have happened next. And absolutely. And I think that was the only saving grace that once I got into therapy years later, when my therapist said, you actually did the right thing. And I just thought I've done the how did I do the right thing? You know, she said, because had you fought back physically, who knows? Yeah. What else as you say? What else could have could have happened? And it's just far too common, far too common with women that we blame ourselves, that we don't talk about it, that we don't speak up because what's the point? You know, what? where would I have gone? I'm in Japan. How do I prosecute this man? I don't even remember his name. You know, like how do you even put that into a legal sense where you're going to get justice sort of thing? So, And not only that man, those two, two other
1: men... Who yeah. grabbed you and fed this man then to be so wicked mm. and, you know, pretend to be the knight in shining armour and rescue you and then do that. Yeah. Oh, yep. goodness. Yeah. You say you packed it away under the bed. So how then did you continue through your young life by packing that away?
0: Looking back on it, I saw how it did deeply affect me because as much as I attempted to compartmentalize it, things like, um, you know, things like I I never wanted to come across as sexy. I changed the way I dressed. I became very much don't look men in the eyes, very much that way. I still struggle with that, actually. So if I meet someone and I'm introduced, it's okay, but my eyes are down and I don't look because I don't want to invite something. You know, that was what my fear was. Don't, uh, you know, don't put yourself out there. Don't come across as anything that's sexual. Don't look at men in the eyes because you're going to get attacked. That was sort of what I had running. Um, So it affected me for years that way, you know, a a deep distrust of men as well. Um, So, and it's, you know, it's a funny experience then to be so in front and center in the media, you know, as a model when internally I'm attempting to kind of put my head down and not get noticed. So it was this real dichotomy for me. Um, and it contributed to a lot of that feeling of insecurity as well that I, that I had already was struggling with and struggled even more with after that.
1: And then of course you you met your beautiful husband, Cameron Daddo, who was like the <laughs> heartthrob as well, indeed for for women of, of our generation, it was like, oh, swoon. <laughs> so, for all intents and purposes, the two of you, as an outsider looking in, had this beautiful kind of fairy tale romance and life.
0: Mm-mm. I know, and it's it's something I I kind of didn't. I was sort of in a little bubble with that. I didn't realize. that that it was such a big deal to so many people. And and again, it's still sort of, I get messages from people today going, it was the biggest deal when you guys started going out because he was on my wall, you were on the front of my textbook. And then when the two of you got together, what? (laughs) So um, yeah, yeah. It was all, gosh, such a ridiculous whirlwind. I mean, you know, it's a fairly well-known story, but met two and a half months later, engaged, a year after that marriage, eight months after that, moved to America. Um, you know, it was just, yeah, we were on a t- treadmill that was on high, <laughs> very fast-paced. Oh, <laughs> a
1: sort of a love bomb. But in terms of what had happened to you though,
0: did you tell Cameron? No, no, I did not tell Cam... Gosh, how many years later? Probably I was about 28 when I finally revealed it in therapy um, and we'd been married or we I'd met him when I was 20, so eight years later. And, yeah, so I talked about it in therapy and then the two of us had therapy together, so my therapist was like that third person to sort of support me as I told him about the full experience.
1: And I can't begin to imagine how hard a conversation like that mm. must have been.
0: Mm. Yeah, he cried. I, I know I cried, but he certainly cried and just couldn't, it could not believe I'd held it for that long. Um, I took. I mean, my, my parents didn't know. I took a long time to tell my parents. They were sort of the next cab off the rank, so to speak. So and I don't think it was immediate that I told them either. I told them a couple of years after that. So it slowly eked out that, that information. Um but yeah, it was it was interesting telling Cam because there was still it was still trying to shake the shame from it. It was still really difficult. It was still, yeah, wrapped up with a bit of shame and an embarrassment somehow that I had been you know, ruined that way and affected in such a deep way. And I didn't want to be that way. I didn't want to feel like I was broken, but a part of me felt like I was permanently broken from that experience. And shame mm. is so damaging. So damaging. It's the worst. <laughs> it's it's just the worst. And I think that, again, unfortunately, it's, it's another common feeling that women have once they've been abused in any way, shape or form, you know, whether it's physical or mentally, um, there's this shame that we wrap ourselves up in, which stops us from growing and it stops us from really getting angry sometimes at the person we're meant to be angry at. Exactly. It stops us from owning our
1: anger and power Mm. and our voice to actually say, this is not on. Yeah. This is not right. I'm not to blame Mm. for what happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, and it's the shame that keeps people quiet.
0: Yeah, yep, yep, yep. And one of my favourite people is Brene Brown. You know, you know. I love her. She Wouldn't imagine if we could get her in this room could too?
1: Could we do that? Could we be in the arena with her? You know, there's that great quote. Isn't of that hers. the best? be in the arena with I know. her. And I know, I know our listeners are in the
0: <laughs> arena too. We're all there together. That helped me <laughs> so much writing that book you know, when I was reading that quote, because I'm like, you know, people are not going to like my book. People are going to say nasty things and whatever, but are they in the arena? Have they written their own book? Can they judge me for what what I'm about to write? So I've remembered her a lot, but her research on shame is so powerful and so good. And I remember that she said, if shame was in a Petri dish and you drop one bit of empathy or compassion into shame, it disappears. I was like, God, that's good to remember. If we can give ourselves just that one bit of empathy or understanding or compassion, yeah, the shame goes. And that's where I was able to build the compassion for myself and let go of the shame. That is so beautiful. It makes me feel quite teary, you describing
1: it in that way, because it is about being compassionate with mm. ourselves. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So are you now compassionate
0: with yourself? I am so much more compassionate (laughs) with myself and it's taken me, I think it's taken me, I'm 52 like you, it took me about to age 50 to get there. (laughs) It took me a long time. And we're not there yet. We're We're still still going, aren't we? (laughs) We are. There's still moments where I'll say something mean to myself and I go, well, that wasn't very nice. But the lessening of the judgment and being embarrassed about this or shameful about that is so much less. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to feel um, more compassion to myself and and particularly compassion, you know, for my younger years and the things that I just didn't know. I just didn't know. And you do the best you can. You tried the very best what you're doing with the information that you have. And that's what you do. But, you know, we all make mistakes and that's okay. We learn from them. And even now, when I do something or think something or say something, I go, okay, well, what are you going to do next time that was going to make you feel better? That didn't work. What's your next step that's going to help you feel more connected or grounded or a better choice than what you just made?
1: <laughs> and I hope, too, Ali, that you feel, I mean, by sharing, in in such an open way with us what happened to you and obviously then with Cam, with your family, with your readers, that it is the right thing to do. I hope that there's a lightning of your load.
0: Mm, Yeah, it really, it has been, it has been. And I was nervous to put it in the book. I had to share it with my children first because I didn't want them hearing about it through media and that was a big conversation, um, particularly with my daughters. Um, and, and how did you navigate that? Oh gosh, it was really just to sit down and this is what I need to speak to you about something. This that you know, as you know, my book is about to come out. There's something a piece in there that I need to share with you that's really important to me. That dad knows, and can was sitting with me and you know, so your dad knows about it. And I want you to know about it because um, it's nothing for you to hear from anyone else's mouth, but my own. So, and I didn't give, you know, major details, of course, I just told them exactly, you know, the facts of what had happened and their little faces were just horrified, as you can imagine. And um, my young, Bodhi cried and they just were like, I'm um, they would, they, they did all the right things. They just hugged me and said, they was so sorry. And I, you know, how did you manage to keep going after that? You know, all those beautiful questions. And so we talked about it some more and, um, my son wasn't there. So I pulled him aside about a week later before the, <laughs> his sisters got to him and said, do you know what happened? But he's such a funny little one. Um, and he's such a private kid and doesn't like to talk about feelings at all. So I sort of said, there's something in the book before you, and that's all I got to. There's something in the book. Mum, I'm never reading your book. I'm not going to look at your book. I'm never, ever, ever reading your book. I said, I know. I know, honey. I don't expect you to read a book on menopause. It's okay. Especially your mum's. I said, but just in case the press picks up on something. And so that's where I told him and he just was like, okay. And he's studying psychology at the moment, so I don't know where he's going to place that for him. But, yeah, he just was like, okay, okay, got it. And that was about it for him. So, yeah. But bravo to you. I think secrets
1: can be so damaging mm-hmm. and we're only as sick as our biggest secret mm. and often people will carry around so much because of that shame or fear of being judged or what other people might think. But for you, I think to be so
0: open, to shed your skin in that way is so empowering for other women. Well, I always find that when other women or men do it. I always find when I'm reading about someone at their lowest point and it feels so relatable as well, where I go, God, I know exactly how that feels. I didn't know anyone else felt that that awful as that person did and how that relates to me. And what happens next? Where do they go to next? How do they get out of that pit of despair? And so I find that um, I'm always fascinated by stories like that. And, you know, there's always, there's a million, trillion stories like that, that everyone's got one, you know. So I love the storytelling aspect of, of growing from someone else's pain in a way, you know, where you can hear their pain, relate to their pain, see how far they've gotten through life by overcoming that and feeling empowered by that. I think that's, that's always the way that I've learned best. You know, if someone's going to teach me something, I want them to teach it to me because they've experienced it, not because they've, you know, read about it in a book and studied it. Like teach me what you know from the inside of you out. (laughs) But it's been, um, yeah, look, I'm. I'm so glad it's in the book. A lot of people have sort of said, "Oh God, you think you maybe shouldn't have put it in there." And I've never thought that. I've never, never felt like it was a mistake. I always felt really, um, it was the right book to put it in and the right context to put it in.
1: You talk about people being at their lowest point. You write about being at your lowest point. And it's from a journal entry that you did. And I think it's remarkable that you really kept journals since you were quite a young girl. Mm -hmm. But this particular low point is when you're going through through menopause. Describe that for Mm. people.
0: Yeah, gosh. And it's funny describing it now because it feels so far away in a lot of ways. And yet, If I read that journal entry, I know exactly the journal entry (laughs) and I know exactly how I was feeling. And it was just, I'd not, I'd sort of, I'd look, I'd had anxiety through my life, not nothing huge. I'd had feelings of loneliness. I'd certainly had a lot of loneliness feelings. I'd never would have described myself as having depression before. And I'd certainly read about depression and I understood it from, again, from a, a textbook sort of place and from someone saying oh this is what it feels like um but just hitting a place mentally where i just started having thoughts that were so so dark that were so alarming to me and having those feelings of i i really don't want to get out of bed there's no point in me getting out of bed um and nothing was bringing me joy for the first time in my entire life, having my children not spark joy was so alarming to me because having wanted to be a mother my entire life and finding so much joy in motherhood and all of a sudden finding, no, that's not, there's nothing there. Like there was just nothing uh, that was sparking any joy, any interest. I had no interest in anything. It was just this deep, dark blanket that I kept thinking, I just need a good night's sleep and I'd wake up and I'm like, oh my God, it's still there. Have another night's sleep, I'm still there. And then just go to bed and just sleep in the day and see if that helps, it's still there. I think the worst moment is having those thoughts of going, I just think it would be better for my family if I wasn't alive. I just think it would be better for everyone. It's going to be easier. I'm too much of a burden. I think I need to just... End this because it's too much for everyone else. Which of course it wasn't, you know, and it was that was the very bottom of the pit. I had like another, another voice. And I know you know this, Jess. And I know probably <laughs> really well. Um, you know, there was just this other voice in my head that just was sort of looking and hearing me in a way, going, what are you actually saying? what are you actually saying in this moment, Ali? Are you actually saying you want to end your life? Like, that's not you. So I kept on kind of reaching for that voice in a way going, actually, it's not me. It's it's really not me. That isn't what I want. So I sort of let myself feel it. I wrote about it in my journal and then started reaching for that voice and going, okay, no, that's that's not what I want. I do want to feel happy again. I do want to be a grandmother. (laughs) I do want to see my children get married. Of course I do. Of course I do. There I am. You know, so bit by bit, you know, can I have a hug? Can I, let's go for a walk together. You know, what's a funny movie we can put on? So just little steps that sort of got me out of that, that pit, but it was, it was alarming, alarming to say the least.
1: And were you able to reach out to people around you to get that help? Or did you have to pull you know, yourself out, listen to that
0: voice? Yeah, no, I didn't. I couldn't reach out. Why? Why yeah. couldn't you? I just didn't think, I felt like it was too boring. I felt like it was, and I was saying the same thing over and over again. I feel really sad. I feel really lost. I feel really sad. I feel really lost. I feel really alone. I felt like a broken record. And I could say that much, but I couldn't sort of say to anyone, I feel like I'm not going to survive much longer. I think had i said that to someone it may have triggered that person to or someone to like reach in a bit more for me but yeah i didn't think i could say that to anyone I, and i didn't i didn't want to say it because i sort of was so like oh my god i can't i can't say that like that's that sounds so extreme and it was but um yeah it was it was most yeah it was pretty much me pretty much me yeah, just pulling myself out.
1: Because I think when, you know, I look back on times where my head was in that place when I was going through the postnatal depression, but what I found was by reaching out, mm. it took the power away from what was whirling around in my yeah. head. Yeah, And I think that's so, it's too much for you to have to have done that yourself. Yeah. And for people it's really important, for people listening to know, reach out to someone. Yeah. Because there are people around. And once you put voice to those frightening thoughts, they lose some of their potency. Absolutely. And it becomes more manageable. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's part of that feeling like um, that no one's going to care idea, which is why you don't reach out. And of course, it's so far from the truth and everyone wants to care, you know. And you're so loved. You're so loved. You're so loved. And like, you're telling yourself you're not in those moments. And it's like, God, if you could just, if you could just know that you are loved and people do want to help. And there is always hopefully going to be someone, this one person. And it only takes one person to tell your story too, that can help you, you know. So, and look, you know, Cam was certainly doing the best he could with the information I gave him. It wasn't all the information and when he read the book, he was like I had no idea it was to that depth, but he could see I was in a very low place and he was doing the best he could. But um but yeah, look, I think I think reaching you know, finding yourself a good therapist, finding someone that's a safe space to talk to is so so helpful it's life saving yeah
1: and it was menopause really that prompted this this mood shift wasn't it for you in terms of your that low mood
0: yeah look it was a perfect storm for sure because i don't want to sort of alarm any menopause or perimenopausal women <laughs> thinking oh my god am i going to get like severe depression like her um and look it can cause depression particularly if you're you know, have a pre, what's the word? Yeah, predisposition. Predisposition. Thank you Uh, to it. Sometimes it can, you know, trigger it, but it was a combination for me of having just moved back from America. I'd lost my entire support system. I'd lost all my girlfriends who we were a gang of ladies that supported each other through thick and thin. And all of my kids' friends, all of my kids' friends' parents, who we were all friends with as well. So moving back to Australia, I'd lost all of that. And I didn't really have friendships here as yet. Um, And so that it just kicked in that deep, deep sense of loneliness. And I was really, really, really struggling anyway with all of that and exhausted from the move. And then comes perimenopause and with it, all the symptoms, all the mental load, all the anxiety. And so, yeah, that's that's really what spiralled me down.
1: And menopause is one of those things that we still don't talk enough mm, about.
0: Mm, that's right. and And we
1: need to. Mm. I've gone through it recently and I'm someone who normally feel the cold terribly and I have to wear <laughs> layer upon layer. But then there are moments, I mean, recently where my husband's like, what are you doing? You've got literally nothing on you, lying on top of the doona and it's freezing cold <laughs> I and I'm going, I'm so hot. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's your superpower now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, or I'll be out talking to someone and then suddenly out of nowhere this whole hot sort of, <gasps> mm-hmm. and I'm... Well, I can be a bit up and down, but normally I'm pretty even keeled and I found my mood was starting to really, yep. and, and I ignored it for a time, which I think some of us do have a tendency yeah. to do, yeah. and it was my mum who said, come on, go to the doc. <laughs> what are you doing? You don't need to just sort of keep just dealing with this yourself. Yes,
0: exactly. It's one of those things that we're so ingrained with women you know, from the minute we start having our periods and we're getting period cramps, oh, you've just got to deal with your period cramps. You know, you get them every month, Um, you know, and then labour pains. And as I say, women who go through endometriosis and just there's so much that as women I feel like we just go, oh, I'll just deal with this. Um, oh, you know, I'm tired. I'm juggling so much. That's just how I am. I'm busy. So when all of those symptoms of menopause that sort of mimic so much of that we get more tired, we get more irritable because we're tired and more resentful more,
1: you know, yeah. and I don't it's not a nice sort of place to be, is it? It's not. Yeah.
0: I don't like no. it. No. <laughs> well for
1: me what worked for me I found I went to the specialist and now I put a like a gel on my arms mm. each morning and take a tablet as well and that has you know I know
0: obviously it's different for everyone but that has really worked a treat for so me. So good. So good. And that's the message that has to be told to everyone. There is a lot of help. And you need to know that there's a lot of help out there. You know, go to your doctor, go to your specialist, go to whoever, you know, is your caregiver. And, and if they're not giving you the care you want, go to someone else. Don't don't be dismissed for your symptoms. You want to have someone that that says, tell me what else is going on. Okay well, let's check for this. Let's check for that. Let's do a full blood work up on you and make sure your thyroid's okay. And all those things that could be changing at our age. So you're in really good health in order to deal with the symptoms as well. And then you've got your HRT, which is just a life changer for women. Um, And then you can support your HRT with naturopathic stuff, like whichever way you want to go, your body, your choice, But there's lots of choices and women need to look into those choices so they're not struggling with so many symptoms, including the mental load as well. There is help for that too.
1: And you don't have to do it on your own. You don't have to be thinking, oh, I've just got to manage this, keep on keeping on, putting yourself last. No, Mm. put yourself first. Absolutely. I want to finish up, Ali, with asking you where you're at now and what is next for you? because you I look at you and you just exude both inner and outer beauty
0: and <laughs> and I almost feel like for you the best is yet to come. It's funny the way my life is changing. It's very exciting there's there's sort of you know just the little opportunities when I'd say little, I should say big opportunities just to actually talk about menopause. um and it's not, it's, it's sort of further on from the book. I've loved talking about queen menopause and I will talk about that till I'm blue in the face. But what's opened up now is just the conversation around menopause and just talking to women about that. You know, I don't know where it's going to take me, if it's retreats, if it's workshops, if it's, I don't know, there's more writing I would like to do. Um, but I feel at my age more capable and more curious and more excited to try new things than ever before. I think I held myself back. I think I was too afraid to try things. And now I'm like, yeah, let's to go. Let's try that all right, I'm going to say yes to that and we'll see what happens there and, you know, and just leap in. So uh, I'm much more excited for my second half than I ever thought I would be. <laughs> oh, well, I can't wait to see what you leap into next. <laughs> Thank you. I have just
1: loved speaking with you, Ali. Mm, Thank you, you so much. Thanks, Jim. You're a beautiful soul. You too. Thank you. <laughs> There is so much that resonates with me in that conversation with Ali. Something that I just love and am going to take away with me is that image she said about that Petri dish, that idea of shame and just having that drop of compassion or empathy for ourselves. So I hope whatever it is you're doing today, you make sure that you have some of that compassion for yourself because you are enough. Now, if this conversation raised any issues for you, please reach out. You're not alone. Lifeline is there. Their number is 13 11 14. As well, there is also the support line 1800RESPECT. We don't want you to feel alone after that conversation. Now, Alison's book is called Queen Menopause, Finding Your Majesty in the Mayhem, where she shares her own experience in a very real way. And for more big conversations like this, follow the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show podcast. And while you're there, I'd love for you to leave a review or share it with a friend. And if you enjoyed this episode with Ali, I reckon you'd love my chat with guest Madeline West. And it was such a demonstration for me of the kindness of strangers that we often invest in relationships where it's like a give and take. There's some kind of an agenda that's transactional. There was nothing transactional about it. At the end, I I thanked her and I said, oh, can I take you out for lunch or something? And she just said, no, just, just be happy. And if there's someone you'd like to hear on the show, you know, I love to hear from you, my dear listeners. Send me a message on Instagram And we'll get in touch and let's see what magic we can work out together. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. Audio producer, Nikki Sitch. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.